We were on holidays uh, just last month. Has anybody ever been on an all-inclusive holiday? Yeah. We've, this was the second one we have ever been on. The first one was our honeymoon, uh, and the second one was was in Portugal there in in August, July and August. And uh, and they're amazing, aren't they? Like they're fantastic. I'd forgotten how good they are. And it was Elijah's first all inclusive holiday, so he didn't really get the whole thing, you know. So so we arrive, and our room just wasn't ready yet because we had an early flight. And they said, leave your cases there and go on in there. They're still serving brunch. And we go in, and, and he, he's looking and go, well, can I have that? And we're like, yeah, you can have that. He's like, well, can I have juice? And we're like, yeah, you can have juice. And, and then we, we get up, and we just leave at the end. And he, he looks at us like we're, we're, we're robbers, like, like the, you know. And, and then later on, he's like, well, can I get an ice cream? And we said, well, okay, you can get an ice cream. And he goes, well, can I have some money? And we said, no, it's paid for. He says, it's free. And I said, no, it's been paid for. And, and this happened for about three or four days. Every time he went to get something, he would say, well, well, can you come with me? And, or can you give me, you know, three euros or whatever it is for a slush puppy or whatever it is? And it was mostly ice creams and slush puppies was what he lived on for two weeks because we were really good parents. Um, but every time he, he went, he, he couldn't get his head. And, he would, and then he would keep going, so it's free. And I would go, no, I've paid for it, son. I have paid for this holiday. You know, and by the middle of the week, I'm like, son, you need to understand, this was not free. I have paid for it. So say thank you. Say thank you. Show some gratitude. But, but he, it was this sense of, every time, it was just sense of he couldn't get his head around. It was all inclusive. It was all ready, paid for before we arrived. Now, we didn't let him just have anything and everything. You know, like, I mean, drinks were included. That was just for Bex, really, more than anything. <laughs> I'm joking. Bex doesn't even drink, so that is a joke, okay? Um, like, but if Elijah came along and said, you know, I want a gin and tonic, we're not going to give him a gin and tonic, okay? Like, if he said... Kind of my fifth ice cream of the day. We're not going to do that. Kind of my 14th slush puppy. No, you've had 13 already. No, you can't. And, and so I guess what I'm trying to, we're talking about prayer. And I was trying to think of why we pray. Why do we pray? Because the Bible says that God, we're going to see in a minute, it says that God already knows what we need. And so why do we pray? Ephesians 1 3, it's on the screen here, Trevor who I kept calling Philip last week, um, who is his brother. It says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Those two words are so important. In Christ, because of what Christ has done, because of a sinless, perfect life, because of a sacrificial, atoning death, because of his glorious resurrection we have everything available to us. Everything. It's all been paid for. It's all inclusive. You don't have to pay for salvation. You don't have to pay for a relationship. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to perform. It's all paid for. 
It is all available. God's salvation is all inclusive. Everything Christ did on the cross paid for every sin you could ever commit. Past, present, future. There's not some sin that you're going to commit that Jesus is going to go, uh-oh, got to go back to the cross for that one. No, it is all covered. We have sang about the precious blood of Jesus. I love singing about the blood. It covers every sin. There is no sin you can commit that is not covered by the blood. It is all inclusive okay and there were things that we would have given to Elijah no matter what he would have got his breakfast lunch and dinner no matter what okay but there were things that he only got because he asked for them they were available they were paid for they were covered already but because he asked for them he got them sometimes and there were things he asked for that he didn't get why because we're good parents. And sometimes it was, I mean, if he had asked for some, like a glass of wine, it's just a no, okay? It's just a no until he's 11. Um, but, 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 but if he, you know, if he asked for his fourth ice cream of the day, it's a no. It's not that we don't want him to have ice cream. We just want, it was not right for him now. Or if he asked for a slush puppy at 8 a.m., it was later. And, and when we pray, sometimes it's a, no, that's not, even though you could do that, no, it's not good for you. And then there's times when it's just like, yes, but not now. Not right now. Yes, that is available for you, but not right now, because it's not best for you right now. And we're going to come and look at the most famous prayer of all. And I, I, I was almost reticent to put on Facebook that we were looking at the Lord's Prayer because we all know it and we've all said it over and over again since we were three years old. And, and it, but, but we're going to actually realize that there is so much more to it than we realize. In the, in, in the Greek, it's 57 words. 57 words. And, in Luke's gospel, the Lord's Prayer comes out of this. The disciples wake up one morning and they look around the room and they notice there's an empty bed. It's Jesus' bed is empty and they go looking for him. And eventually they climb the mountain and they find him in a little cleft of a rock and he's praying. And they come to him and they say, Jesus, teach us to pray. Luke 11, verse 1. Jesus, teach us to pray. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Notice what they didn't ask. They didn't say, teach us to preach. They didn't say, teach us to lead. They didn't say, teach us to counsel. They didn't say, teach us to do miracles. I would have said, you know that walking on water thing? Teach me to do that. Or, and I know why there's a running pattern here. You know that water and the wine thing? Um, like, I would, like, that's a real part. Like, that would be great for parties, you know, that bring out, you know, bring me a bottle of wine. Da-da. You know, they didn't. They said, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Why? Because there was something about Jesus' relationship with the Father that they realized that the source of the miracles and the source of the healings and the source of everything was based on his relationship with the Father. They were Jews. They had been taught to pray three times a day. They prayed in the morning, they prayed at three in the afternoon, and they prayed in the evening. But they were mechanical prayers, and yet there was something about, as they watched Jesus address the Father, there was something they said, and they said, there's something different. Would you teach us to pray? And I find that encouraging. 
Because that teaches me that prayer is something you can learn. That it's not just some people are, you know, like some people are good at things and some aren't. Some people are musical and some aren't. Some people are naturally gifted. You know, I don't think any of us are, are naturally gifted. I mean, naturally gifted at prayers. Like how many of us go, you know what, I actually just pray way too much. I need to calm the oil prayer down a wee bit. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I could just pray for four or five hours a day. You know, that, most of us, that is not our problem. Most of our, our problem is this. I pray for five minutes and I don't know what to say the rest of the time or I don't know what who to pray, I don't know what I'm praying about or I fall asleep or I get distracted by the neighbor's dog and one minute I'm praying and the next minute I'm thinking about how I can poison my neighbor's dog. It's happened to me once when I lived in Lurgan. I used to actually think about poisoning the dog when I was meant to be praying and 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 and, and I get distracted and I, I get unfocused and, and we know we should pray. It's a bit like It's a bit like eating broccoli or going to the gym. We know we should do it. We just don't do it. It's a struggle. It's a difficulty. It's a challenge. And, and that's why I think they say, teach us to pray. And, and, and I think there's something that God wants to teach us here in Hope. He's saying, I want to teach you how to pray. I want to teach you how to actually come to the Father and get what you need and, 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 and really enter into His presence. Because look at what he says. He, he says, well actually, yeah, sorry. Sometimes we feel like we're twisting God's arm when we pray. Like is prayer, is prayer going to God and trying to get something that he doesn't want to give us? Because that's sometimes how we approach it, isn't it? That if we can just come up with a convincing enough argument, you know, God will feel sorry for us. Sometimes prayer is nothing but complaining out loud. We just come to God and we say we're praying, but we're just having a good old moan. You know, and we're just telling them all that's wrong with the world and then we walk away again. Sometimes we think we're informing God in prayer. Like he really didn't know that Sadie next door had bunions. And we come, I mean, I have been, I honestly, Becky will tell you, like I have been in prayer meetings that go, dear Lord, you know Sadie who lives in Queen's Parade, number 17. Is it 17? I think it's 17. You know Sadie, she's done no harm all her life, Lord. And she's really battling these old bunions at the minute, Lord. And, and Lord, you know that if you could just heal those bunions, she'd be able to get out to, ch- and you can imagine God going to, you know, going to the arch and, Archangel Michael, did you know Sadie had bunions? Like, we really got to do something about those bunions. Like, we, we think we're informing God or we're trying to manipulate God. We're trying to, if we can just get the right formula, just say the right words, almost like rubbing a, you know, a lamp and a genie's going. And yet, none of those are prayer. And Jesus is trying to teach us what prayer actually is. I, I love that quote, uh, from from Martin Luther, he says this, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. That's a good quote. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. So the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, teach us to pray. Teach us to relate to the Father the way you are. And the first thing he does is this. He teaches them how not to pray. Look at what he says. And when you pray, okay, that's the first thing I want you to see. He says, when you pray, not if. The expectation is if you're a child of God, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, you will pray. When you pray. Prayer is to be part of our lives. Do not be like the hypocrites. 
The word for hypocrite comes from the Greek hypocrisis. And it was a play actor. It was someone who wore a mask in a play. He's saying, don't be like someone wearing a mask. Don't put on a front. Don't be a performer. In those days, there were, uh, like I said, the Jews prayed three times a day, morning, three in the afternoon, and, and in the evening. And there were certain people who, at three in the afternoon, would just happen to be in the main street, in High Street, where, and, 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 and they would just happen to be there when the bells tolled for prayer. And so that everyone could see them. Jesus is saying, don't be like that. Don't be putting on a religious show. I've been in prayer meetings and not in the so recent past where I felt like I was getting a mini theological sermon rather than a prayer. I felt like somebody was trying to impress me with their theological knowledge. And I'm like, like, I don't even understand what you're praying. Like, like, what is this? And they were quoting things and quoting saints and Puritan. And I'm like, 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 what are you talking about? Like, just, he says, don't do that. You're not doing it for performing in front of people. He says, I tell you, you've received the reward in full. In other words, you might be impressing people, but that's the only reward you're going to get. That's as good as it's going to get. But when you pray, go into your room. Close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. The secret to prayer is prayer in secret. The secret to prayer is who you are behind closed doors. Then he says, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He says, when you pray in secret, two things. One, your father sees. Two, he'll reward you. Do you know God wants to reward you? I struggle with that in our Northern Ireland culture. We, we don't like to think of that. Where God actually says, I want to reward you. When you do things the way I say, when you do things the way I've laid out, when you're not doing your acts of piety and religion to be seen by people, I want to actually reward you. And when you pray, he says, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard from because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need. Some people think that the longer you pray, the more brownie points you earn with God. And that's in all religions. That if you can just pray, it's like like God's got a, a clock and he's going, you prayed 59 minutes, you, you'll get a lot this week. You know, or, or say 10 Hail Marys or 12 Our Fathers. I'm not, but that is not, that's what Jesus is talking about here. Repetitive, meaningless prayer. That actually doesn't engage the mind and heart. You're just going through the motions. You're just repeating stuff. Thinking that if you just say things over and over again. It'll somehow earn God's favor or get his attention or he'll do what you want. That is not what prayer is. Prayer is simple. It's relationship. It's communion, it's connection, it's it's friendship, it's interaction, it's two-way. It's not just me coming to God with a shopping list and away I go. It's it's, it's me coming to, to, to God and, and sharing my heart and listening to him. It's not just babbling, because that's what the pagans would do. They would babble on and on and on. Actually, the Greek word for babbling is blatherer. Like I say, don't be an old blatherer. Like, don't blather on and on. God doesn't want to hear that. He wants you to get to the point and uh, because God knows what you need this then is how you should pray he says our father our father prayer is a mystery folks 
He says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And so you do say, why pray? And there's two sides that we swing to. And there's the reform side, which I am drawn to. And I'm not going to get heavily there. But the reform side would say this. Everything is already set in stone, okay? God knows every person who's going to get saved in advance. He knows every single thing. He knows what you're going to do. He knows what you're going to have for lunch. He knows every single thing about you. Therefore, you can't change. Everything is set in stone. God knows everything in advance. Then there's the others would go, no, actually, it's a bit more fluid than that. It's a bit more open than that. I, I would fear somewhere in the middle. I believe God is absolutely sovereign, okay? I believe God knows everything. But in his absolute sovereignty, he has chosen to delegate a huge amount of authority and responsibility to human beings. So that your choices are real choices. That there are certain things you do that will lead your life this way and certain things you do that will lead your life this way and you're not a puppet on a string. That we are free agents. We're created in the image of God with a free will and your free will will take you in a certain direction and your prayers will impact the world. I believe there are things that will change if you pray. I believe that if you pray, certain things will happen and if you don't pray, certain things will not happen because God in his sovereignty has said, I will give you authority. I will give you responsibility as my image bearers here on earth and therefore I will partner with you. We will co-labor together to get this thing done on earth and therefore God wants us to pray, not that it's already set in stone, not because if we don't, nothing will happen, but because God wants to actually partner with us. And we see that in the Bible. You see, that's, that's, I, I, that's my problem with, and I mostly read Reformed commentaries because they're theologically sound, but they, they ignore passages where Abraham goes before God and God's about to destroy the city and Abraham pleads and God goes, okay, I'll, I'll, if you can find... 100 righteous people, if you can find 30, if you can find, and ignores those places where uh, God's about to destroy Nineveh, but he changes his mind. It ignores those places where, uh, where, where, where God's people intervene, where God's people stand in the gap, where God's people intercede, and God goes, because you did that, I'm not going to do what I was going to do. That there is something about the heart of God that responds to his children. There's something about the heart of God that's moved by his children. There's a, a story by Bill Johnson of Bethel. And uh, I may have told it before. I, I love it. Uh, Bill Johnson is in his late 60s now. and he, he talks about a family reunion that they had in Northern California. He's a pastor of a, of a big church in, Beth, in, in Northern California. And he says, I don't dance. He says, I don't care in what the situation is. He said, I don't dance. I will not dance for anything. I will not dance for anyone. In school, when they were doing what they called square dancing, he said that his church didn't allow it, which was only partially true. He just didn't want to dance. Okay? So they have this family reunion where there's all these, there's hundreds of them in this place. And... Uh, 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 and and, uh, and they're doing some dancing thing. And uh, he says entire families were attempting to dance together. He says it was fun to watch. And it was obvious which families knew what they were doing and which ones didn't. We laughed as people stepped on each other's feet awkwardly attempting to learn difficult moves. Then the unexpected happened, he said. 
Now, this is a guy who doesn't dance. He says, my daughter, Leah, about 10 years old, asked me if I would dance with her. Now, I'm known for being unmovable. Some family members call it stubborn. I call it commitment. Yet in that moment, I felt like I'd been ambushed. My feet were solid, my resolve firm, and my argument was steadfast. But daughters, especially 10-year-old daughters, have a way of getting under the radar. To my horror, I found myself without a will saying, yes. Where was my toughness? Where was my resolve? Where was my gift of stubbornness when I needed it most? To this day, I don't know. I'd been brought to my knees by a little girl. Moments later, I was on the dance floor attempting what I knew better than how to attempt. But the look in my little girl's eyes told me all was well. Her pleasure more than made up for my embarrassment. And I understood again how fathers willingly make themselves vulnerable to the desires of their children. And how God joyfully makes himself vulnerable to the desires of his people. God makes himself vulnerable to the desires of his children. And there are things that if you pray will happen and there are things that if you don't pray will not happen. God responds to the prayers of his people. Why does he do that? Well, we get to see that. Because he's our father. Because he is our father. You know, how you address somebody says a lot about the relationship you have with them, doesn't it? How you, the title you call them. Years ago, when I was starting to think about ordination, I had to go up and meet the, the then Archbishop of Armagh, Robin Eames. And I didn't know how to address him. You know, I call him Mr. Eames. I think he was a lord at the time, but I wasn't going to call him Lord. Uh, do I call him Robin, Rob, Robert, whatever? I didn't know. And, and I spoke to a minister friend, and they said, you know what the correct title is? Your Grace. I said, that's never going to happen. Okay? <laughs> so I drive up to the whatever palace that he lives in in Armagh. And for one hour, I managed to have a conversation with him without ever addressing him as anything. Have you ever done that? That's when you forget somebody's name, sometimes you do that, don't you? Especially when they come up for prayer, I just pray for my sister um, in Christ. Uh, but, but for one hour, because I wouldn't, I wouldn't call him your grace or my Lord or whatever, you know, you were meant to call him. So I didn't call him anything. If you were, you know, when I first went to Lurgan as an ordained curate, they used to, for the first few weeks, they called me Reverend Cooney. And then it was Craig. And then by the time I left, I got taxi and coon dog. And, you know, because they were familiar with me because how you address somebody, if I call you sir, madam, or mister, or missus, it means I have a distance. But if I call you by your first name. And so God here teaches us, well, how, how, how do I want you to address me? Jesus is saying, I, when you come to God, this is how you should address him. Because the Jews had many names for God. Lord, Adonai, Creator, King. And Jesus says, no, call him our Father. This would have been a huge shock for those Jews. Listen, in Aramaic, the first two words a baby learnt were Abba and Ima. Ima. Abba and Ima. Mama and Papa. Dada and Mama. Abba means Dada. Ima means Mama. You'd be on a bus. I've been in Israel. You'll hear Abba, Ima. You'll, you'll hear a little child. And Jesus is saying, when you come before the almighty creator of the universe, you call him Abba. You call him Father. 
There were thousands of gods in those days. Distant remote deities that you had to appease. There were fertility gods and agriculture gods. And, and if you didn't appease them, you know, the crops mightn't grow. And you were constantly trying to do you enough brownie points. And even among the Jews, they saw God as distant. They wouldn't even pronounce the name of God in case he struck them down. And they saw him as distant and remote. And yet Jesus comes along and he says, you can call him Abba. You can call him Father. He's not distant. He's not remote. And I'm very aware when we use the word father, for some of you, you have so many lovely memories. And when you think of your father, you have just good memories. And for some of you, it's hard. Maybe your father was absent. Maybe you wish he was absent because he was so abusive and authoritarian. Maybe he was um, angry all the time. Maybe he abandoned you. Maybe you're a great father. Now that I, I'm a dad myself, I, I, I get something. I always struggled with this. I, I always found it easier to relate to God as high and holy and majestic. And when people talked about calling God Abba or Dad or Father, I, I really, and I still wrestle with it a bit, but I think now that I've become a dad, you know, you just you start to understand a little bit. I mean, this is a photo of when Elijah was born. This is about his first... Look at the wee man now. He's about to turn seven this week. But that was within about half an hour from being born. And, and in that moment, any parent will know that, that just, just, you just look at that little one and you go, there is nothing I will not do to protect you. There's nothing I... Like, like, like you're, in that moment, your whole world changes. So you can, you can take that off now. I look so young. Um, but, but, you you know... But I've also realized this, that being a dad is really hard. Like, none of us really talk about that. I don't, maybe it's just me. Actually, it's not just me, because I had a conversation with another dad this week who said the same. That, that being a, I have just found being a dad really, really hard. It's one of those things that I thought I would find really natural. And it's really hard. I, I, I just find being a dad. And it gives me... A, you know, there's no excuse for abuse. There's no excuse for, for some of it. But I also realize that as a dad, I'm so imperfect, okay? That that as much as I try to express something of the fatherhood of God to Elijah, my son, I will always do it imperfectly. I, I will always make a hash. At times I shout at him. At times he gets on my very last nerve, especially the last few weeks of his summer holidays. Or can I get an amen from the parents? <laughs> You know, you're just like, please go back to school. Um, you know, and I just, I'm so aware of how imperfect I am as a dad. Whether your dad was perfect in so many ways or whether he was incredibly imperfect, your heavenly father is absolutely perfect. You have a father in heaven who is perfect beyond anything. Even the best dad in the world, even the kindest, most loving dad in the world is nothing compared to your heavenly father. And the, if, you, if you had an awful dad or an absent dad or a, an authority, you now have a loving father in heaven. You have a father in heaven who absolutely adores you, who, 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 who you're the apple of his eye. He, he just loves you so, so much. He's so much better than any human father. And that's the privilege of being a Christian is that we can call God father. You see, there's this 
fallacy out there that if God's everyone's father. God is everyone's creator, okay? But the Bible makes it clear that, that actually through Christ, we're adopted into his family. That yes, God loves the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And in John 1, it says this. In John 1, it says, Yet to all who receive him, receive Jesus, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right. What was the right? To become children of God. Then in First John he says, what is the, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So he's saying that not everybody knows him. But we know him because we're his children. How does that happen? When you become a Christian, when you invite Christ into your life, the Holy Spirit comes in and it says the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought, brought, brought your adoption to sonship. And by the Spirit living within us, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit is within us is like that, that adoption certificate. It says you're part of the family. It, it's that seal that tells us that we are part of God's family. And notice it's not just my Father. It's our Father. We live in, I talked about this last week, in this individualistic society. Jesus says when you pray, say, our Father. But it's weird because he's saying, go into your room, close the door. That sounds a bit weird to me. So you're in the room, you're on your own, you're closing the door and you're saying, our father. But I'm the only one here. What's he saying? He's saying, I think there's two things. He's saying, remind yourself that you're part of a family. So when you pray, remember that you're praying not just for yourself. You're praying for the body. You're praying for your family. You're praying for the church. You're praying for other people. You're praying for the people you work with, the people you live beside. You're praying for your neighbors. You're praying for your family. I, I think that's part of it. But I think it's also this. They came to Jesus and they said, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, say, our father. I think he's saying, he's your father and he's my father. Jesus is saying, the relationship that I have with God the father is the same relationship you can have. Now, I know his was unique in that he's the only begotten son of God. He's the firstborn. But there's also a sense where, where we're co-heirs with Christ, the Bible says. Look at what Jesus said after he was um, resurrected and Mary meets him at the tomb. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But look at what he says. He says, go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. Jesus is saying when we say our Father, we're reminding ourselves that we have the same access to the Father as Jesus did. That actually when God looks at us, he sees us as, as he sees Jesus, covered in the righteousness and purity of Jesus. That we have a Father in heaven. It's not I. And when you look at the entire prayer, never does it say I, me, or mine. It's our Father your kingdom, give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us, yours is the kingdom. As I said last week, we are connected, we are family, we're a body, we're a bride, and we pray for one another. Who art in heaven, we're nearly there. Who art in heaven, where's God now? God's in heaven, where's heaven? Up there, that's what we'd say, up there somewhere. Heaven's up there somewhere. What Jesus is saying here is this, that life is more than what you see. 
that here on earth we have three dimensions. We have the physical, tangible things that we see, taste and touch. We, we live in a physical, visible world. But Jesus is saying that actually there's a supernatural world. There's an invisible spiritual realm which is beyond us and which actually existed before the physical world and everything we see first came from that. And so when you pray, you're not just praying to somebody on earth, you're praying to a supernatural being. You're praying to someone who is beyond us. You're praying to a God who is invisible, who is in the invisible realm, but you're praying that that God who's your father in the invisible realm will somehow bring that invisible realm and shift things here on earth shape things here on earth, move things here on earth. That this is not all there is. There's more, as I often say, there's more to life than meets the eye. There's a an invisible spiritual world all around us at all times. It says in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Plural. So when we talk about heaven, there's three heavens I I believe from scripture. There's the heaven, which is the sun, moon, and stars around us. Okay, the Bible sometimes talks about that. That the sun, moon, stars, that's the heavens. That's the first heaven. There's a second heaven that the Bible talks about, which is where angels exist. Good angels, bad angels, which we also refer to as demons. And there's a spiritual conflict. And that is all around us at all times as well. And then there's a third heaven, which is the residing place of God and those he chooses to be there. And it is, uh, it is a place where there's only perfect holiness and where God is seated on a throne where God is seated in glory and majesty and splendor. And that's what we read in Matthew 5, that God is on a throne. That's what we read throughout the scripture, that God is seated on a throne, that he's in charge. It mightn't always seem like it, but he knows exactly what he's doing and he knows where everything is heading. But there's also spiritual forces, Ephesians 6, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So when we pray, there's a spiritual element to it. There are, that we are, we are saying, God, would you bring your good spiritual forces? Would you bring your angelic host? Would you move against the evil, against the darkness, against the sectarianism, against the racism, against all of the dark stuff in our society? God, would you come and fight against that on our behalf? We're inviting heaven to come to earth, as we'll see next week when we say, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as in heaven. We're saying, God, would you Bring heaven to earth. Prayer is a spiritual thing. God and the devil are not equal. Sometimes you know it's a God on one shoulder and the devil on the other. God is uncreated. The devil is created. He is a fallen angel. That's no competition. We know how it ends. Read the end of the book. The devil ends up in a lake of fire. Okay? God is uncreated and has complete and total authority. And therefore, when we come to pray, we ask two questions. The first one is, does God want to help me? And we've just found out, yes. Why? Because he's our father. Second question is, can he help me? Yes, because he's in heaven, seated on a throne. Therefore, how do we respond? And this is actually where I'm really finishing. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed or hallowed be your name. We give worship. We give praise. We give glory. We give honor to God. Hallowed be your name. It's an old-fashioned word, isn't it? You don't go up to somebody and go, Flip, you're looking real well today. Hallowed be your looks. You know, or it means may they be ascribed the, 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 the worth that they're due. 
So when we're saying, it, it, it comes from the word for holy. Uh, and basically what we're saying is, is that may you be seen to be as holy as you are. May the world, it's actually, it's not so much a prayer as a declaration. It's, it's let your name be hallowed. Let people see you for who you are. Let your name be glorified. God, come down and let people see you as you are. Let people see you in all your glory and all your majesty and all your purity and all your righteousness and all your your goodness. God, let your name be hallowed in the places of darkness. Let your name be hallowed in the places of injustice. Let your name be hallowed in the places of unrighteousness. God, hallowed be your name. May your name be recognized as holy. One of my biggest fears about the church today is with such a small concept of God. The pendulum swung from 60 years ago or 50 years ago when God was so distant and remote and to be, you know, you were scared of him and he was like this big angry God in the sky just waiting to send everybody to hell. And I think, think the fear of the pendulum has swung the other way where we've got this God who's just like a doting old grandfather who doesn't really care about much. And we can just be as casual as we want. There's this hyper-grace movement that you can live however you want, think whatever you want about God, and it doesn't matter because sure, he'll forgive you anyway. And I think we need to recover, yes, he is our father, but he is holy. That is the preeminent quality of God in Scripture. He is holy. Isaiah 6 in the Old Testament, holy, holy, holy. Revelation 4 in the New Testament, holy, holy, holy. It's the only thing that's said about God three times. If I wanted to emphasize something to you, I would put it in bold, I would underline it, I would highlight it, I would put an exclamation mark. In the Bible, when they wanted to emphasize something, they repeated it. And it's saying God's primary quality is not even love. It's holiness. His love is part of his holiness. His justice is part of his holiness. His grace is part of his holiness. His righteousness is part of his holiness. But the overarching umbrella, if you like, is that God is holy and therefore we cannot treat him as casual. We need to be so careful that we don't lose our reverence for God. Yes, I am Elijah's dad, but you know what sometimes I say to him? Who are you talking to? Like seriously, he'll be rude, he'll be cheeky, he'll, you know, and I'll say, Elijah, talk to me with respect. I still love him, I'm still his dad, but when he treats me and talks to me with disrespect, I just need to remind him. I'm his source. I could smite him like that, you know what I mean? And we need to remember, yes, God is our father, he loves us, he adores us, he's passionate about us, but he is still God. He is still holy. He still is righteous. He's still perfect. And when we come to him, we come to him as our father, but we come to him with reverence, awe, and respect. We come to him saying, hallowed be thy name. Friends of mine this week were posting photographs from the Grand Canyon. They're there at the minute. And some of them looked real, like they were like right on the edge. You know, when you read about those stories, people taking like, social media photos and they die. I, I just could imagine this happening then because they were right on the edge doing these selfies for Instagram and stuff. But but they were just totally overawed bad. And it reminded me of us going to the Grand Canyon on our honeymoon. And we'd, we'd driven down late the day before and we'd got up early because we were told sunrise was amazing. We got up at four o'clock and we went down and we saw sunrise was beautiful. Went and had breakfast, went back. Planned to spend at least one day, if not two days at the Grand Canyon. Three hours later, we're calling at the big hole in the ground. 
time to go home at that stage. Something that was so awesome, so incredible, just became normal. Became, it just became the big hole in the ground. Sometimes we are like that with God. We become so over-familiar and so casual that we actually lose the awe of who he actually is. And so when we're saying your name be hallowed, we're saying, God, we want your name to be honoured. We want your name to be recognised. Because a name in the Old Testament, a name in, in those days wasn't just a title. Like, I'm Stephen Craig. I don't care. Like, I, I could be Stephen. I could be Craig. I but in the Old Testament and in those days, your name actually, it represented your character. It represented your reputation. It represented your identity. And it's saying, may your name, God, be recognised as holy. May it be regarded as infinitely precious. Make yourself known. Magnify your character. Show yourself for who you are. And so yes, he is holy, but he's our father. He's our holy father. And I'm glad he's both. I'm so glad he's both. Because if he was just daddy, he wouldn't be able to change anything. And if he was just holy, I'd be terrified. But he's my holy dad. And therefore the Bible says we can approach the throne of grace with confidence because of what Christ has done. There's an old story about somebody who was trying to get to see the king and they were they went up to the guards outside Buckingham Palace. This was decades ago and they said and they said no. And they said, can I get in to see the king? No. Can I get in to see the king? No. This little boy who was about eight years old came along and overheard it and he said, come with me. And the man went with him and he walked past all the guards and walked straight into the king. And the little boy walked in and said, Dad, there's somebody here who wants to see you. Jesus, the Son, has come to give us access to the Father. And through Jesus, we can get in to the Father's house. We can know God as Father. I had a story, but we don't have time. Let's pray together.